Welcome to the FTSQ podcast series, Celebrating Nonconformists. Today we're interviewing Minter Dial. He's an amazing person that I met a few years ago now, a futurist, a renowned author and professional speaker. Welcome, Minter. Well, very kind of you. Thanks for having me on the show, Lena. Oh, I'm excited about this conversation today. I think it's going to be a good one. You and I are not short on a word or two. No, this is true. <laughs> right. So just to kick things off, before we sort of dive into you and your life and all those kinds of things, it would be really good to get your thoughts on what you consider a nonconformist actually is. Well, when you take the starting vantage point that I'm a white male, rather pale stale kind of guy, it doesn't sound like I'm going to be the real nonconformist. And then certainly on balance, I'm not. Uh, you know, if you had to pick out David Bowie or me as a nonconformist, I think I know who I choose. That said, within the context of life, in, in all areas, there are people who are nonconformist. And I like to characterize them as people who play outside of the rules. So these are rules that can be laws. It can be rules that are at school. And it can be a little bit the unspoken rules of society. And so it's people who are comfortable playing along that borderline or inside or outside of it. Yeah, I agree. I think what's really interesting about that as I've delved further into the whole area of nonconformists and, and in the future I intend to do some more research on this, I always thought that they were always loud and gobby like me but actually I'm starting to realize these these nuances and different profiles that fit within within the non-conformist so yeah to, totally agree with and that sometimes it's about just how few people who feel that they don't belong and and so somehow that is their their narrative that they feel that they're non-conformist because they don't conform to that apparent group that seems to be the cool group yeah, I think a lot of the time I talk about people being square pegs and, and round holes, and it doesn't necessarily mean that in the bigger, wider world they're seen as nonconformist, but maybe within their peer group or their the business or industry that they're in, they can be. Cool. So um, next question that I'll ask is more about you, about Minter. Tell us about yourself. Were, were you always different from those around you and then sort of the, the way that you were brought up and so forth? Well, so I have my narrative on that. You know, everyone, <laughs> as I'm writing in my new book, this notion of needing to belong and yet feel different. And I think it's part of the human condition. And maybe the nonconformist is more interested in being different than belonging, but even nonconformists need to belong as well. So in that context, I can say that I, can, I started off life with my non-conforming to my parents' wishes to talk. So it took me three years to actually start speaking. And when I did start speaking, I spoke in three languages. So that was maybe my kickoff point. But then afterwards, I can say I non-conformed at my very first school where I got kicked out at the age of five for apparently. You? Yeah, at five? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tick, I managed to get kicked out of one school. But that was the only school I, for some reason, got caught at. And then I suppose that if I had to put another arc on my life of nonconformity as being someone who's changed countries 15 times and uh, homes 34 times in my 55 years. And basically, when anyone asks me a question of like, well, where am I from? Because they want to put a little sticker on my head. They end up with a, an answer. They're like, oh, I wasn't expecting that. So the, the nature of it is I, 
I was born to American parents. I have a US passport. I also have a French passport, but I was born in Belgium and I was raised in England and or at least educated in England. And so this is my melange has made me and, and therefore it's very hard for people to put a, an exact sticker and say, oh, he's a, and that's sort of been my life narrative. It's a pretty interesting place to have been for, for someone, as you said, for someone that uh, now speaks on a public stage and on a regular basis <laughs> and writes and uses language. It's quite interesting to hear that it took so long for you, for you to be able to communicate. Obviously, once you got going, though, that kind of changed. So t- tell me more about sort of the family time and the schools and the changing and swapping and moving countries. Mm. Talk to me about that. Right. So born in Belgium, then we moved to France, and I started my day school that I got kicked out of in France. Then we moved to London, and my I went to a day school in the center of London called the Hill House. And that was all very traditional and, and highly orchestrated and there was a whole style it was very swish and elegant my father was an expatriate my mum was doing her best living at home and taking care of us my sister and myself and then the decision was to put me in a prep school in dorset and that happened concurrent with the time that my parents decided to move back to paris so all of a sudden i end up being in boarding school in dorset at a place called the Old Malt House, which now closed down, and then doing, whenever possible, the commute to Paris, you know, going to Heathrow and, and then the flying over. We didn't have the old Eurostar back then. Sometimes it was the ferry boat from Southampton. And my life became kind of very, dis- well, not, not quite as associated with the family because I was in boarding school. And so I started at the age of eight. And um, I, I fell into good times at boarding school mostly because I was a good athlete. I was definitely not a smart boy. I was always sort of middling the bottoming of the classes. And But I, the, the thing that held me through was that I was a good athlete and that kept me in the good good books, if you will. Although I did get my pounding, my beating from the headmaster and my, my very first thwack <laughs> from the headmaster. Back in those days, it was it was normal practice. Anyway, this oh, led I me... Oh, I remember. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> for those of us who lived then... <laughs> but the journey was one of becoming more independent, living in, in England and, and identifying with the English and, and learning English history. And yet I had these American parents living in France. Soon after moving to France, my mother and father's marriage broke down. And then my mum, they divorced and my mum moved back to America. So I was then in the States Sorry, I was then in, in Dorset and my mum was in America, my father was in Paris, and I would alternate holidays. Half terms became more things I did with my other school chums. So I'd only see my parents even less then, and only one at a time. And then I went to Eton in Windsor, Berkshire, and I had five years there. And basically, it seems like the most traditional and conforming type of, of lifestyle. And when you wear a a uniform all day, it, it does take away one element of trying to disconform or discombobulate, which is you know the, what you wear. So you, you're forced to align in what you wear. You might occasionally show the little white triangle underneath your waistcoat, but for the rest, <laughs> you were obliged to sort of follow the standards. So you had to find other ways to show your difference and to stand out. So you belong to this group, 
but you wanted to show who you were different. And, and so I was always trying to find my little path. And I guess I found that through music. Tell me, tell me more about that because, yeah, you're right. Going to somewhere like Eton, I could, in my head, I couldn't think of anything more concerning. <laughs> so, was it always in you to want to still want to stand out in that environment? Because some people would find that scary in you that know, environment to stand out. Well, definitely, boarding school is not for everybody, and some, you know, it makes and, and breaks people. My challenge was that I felt that I was British, but I always was called a Yank, and I hadn't basically but stepped a couple of times my feet in the united states so of course i had my parents but let's say many of the times we would speak french together because my parents are both fluent in french and with my sister who speaks like me in many languages we would speak in multiple languages and so this idea of being an american just sort of didn't fit with me i i, I, I this, for me the second world war was well it was d-day and 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 the and the british raf and everything that the British went through as opposed to the, the American side, which was almost really not really on my radar. Of course, they participated in D-Day and so on. But anyway, so I, I was always already not fitting in. And then I, I had this extraordinary moment. I became friends with a, a chap who was two years older than I was. He played guitar, piano, drums, brilliant musician. His name was Mark. And he, he was the only person in all of Eton that I knew of who had a room that he was allowed to color a different color other than white. And that was orange. So he had painted his walls orange and he had tapestries on the top. And I fell under his charm. He was, you know, just a remarkable individual. And it was thanks to him that I got exposed to playing guitar. And he showed me this band, this rock and roll band that nobody knows. That's totally different and really wild. So it's the only the rock and roll band that's played the largest number of concerts in the history of humanity, that 93% of everyone has gone to a concert has already been to a concert that they have played in. It's the kind of concert that lasts five hours long and no song is ever the same. In fact, no concert that they ever played. They played 2,317 concerts over their 30 years together. And yet many people uh, certainly don't know them. Of course, at a certain age and a certain culture, you might have heard of them. But anyway, this I'm, I'm leading you into down a garden path because oh, this no, is the group like that he, he, turned, <laughs> he turned me on to. And I was like, oh, this is really different. And I started enjoying it. And he would, and we started learning how to play some of the songs on guitar. And well, anyway, you have to tell us who they are. Well, I will. I will. Anyway, I ended up uh, doing a speech to all my fellow Etonians about this band. I'd seen them in concert a couple of times at the Rainbow Theater, as it happens in 1981. And I, I, and I remember putting on the vinyl on the record player up on stage, and there was about, I don't know, 600 people in the room. You know, there I was explaining this psychedelic uh, rock group called the Grateful Dead. Ah, cool. <laughs> and, um, yeah, well, it was, it's weird, and it's really difficult to explain in a way that's plausible to people in, in, in eight minutes, which is what I had to do that speech in. And, uh, but it was the first major public speech that I ever made. And I'm very proud to say that it was about the way for that. Anyway, just the, 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 where this, I wanted to go with this is that I left Eton. Let's say I was not a total reprobate, but I was pretty much out there. And when I got to the United States, I remember my first day arriving at a school in, in the United States. And I, I go, <laughs> I'm, it, I was part of the, athletes coming for the early training and and i remember smelling something down the car as <laughs> well that definitely doesn't smell like a cigarette um 
wow, that's really crazy. I can't believe I'm even smelling this in the corridor. Anyone can smell this. And so I find I find the room that's I knock on the door and I hear everyone scurrying around in the room. And so I was like, wait, wait, we're coming, we're coming. And they open the door, creak it open. Oh, it's you. What do you want? <laughs> so I was, I was the new kid, you know. So I, so I, I had to pierce my and I, you know, I said, well, I just, you know, I thought I'd come by. I heard some good music. I, I can't believe you like this same sort of music that I like. Because in Eton and in England at the time, I mean, there was one out of a thousand people in my network that would have ever heard of the Grateful Dead. Anyway, so I got into this room, and, and little did I know, of course, it was a it was a, the thing to do in the states for the cool kids, and and there I was now totally the the conformist. Wow! Thinking I had been the nonconformist in the in England, I come in and here are more sort of longer haired, pot smoking kids listening to Grateful Dead, and that's that was quite a shock for. That was a funny rebalancing of my system. Anyway, thanks to that, I learned how to throw Frisbee in extreme precision and all the other really useful things. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) So I think that's a a fantastic story. And to have seen, you've obviously seen them quite a few times, as you said, over the years. Yeah, 200 Um, times, yeah. I think what's really interesting in in that piece that you've just talked about is the context of nonconformity, because as you said, you're the same person in one country, you're completely the nonconformist. In the other country, you're cl- completely the conformist. Yeah. I've I mean, talked about that before. Albeit, of course, you know, <laughs> pot smokers aren't generally the conformist group anywhere, but I was definitely, instead of being the sort of the solo, I was now part of a, a bigger group. And if, if anyone ever, who listens to this podcast, who was there at the time, there were basically, they were called the seven in heaven, these friends. And by the end of the year, there are only six left. And they, so that was my cohort of friends. So somehow I managed not to be expelled. Was that just? (laughs) Just managed it or? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Awesome. Well, that brings me on to a really interesting question, actually, about milestones. Because obviously, we've talked quite a lot about the the sort of earlier stages. But as you've gone on through to, you know, university and on into work and life and those kinds of things, what other significant milestones and, and sort of moments can you see were quite interesting turning points in your in your life? Well, one of them that sticks out is has been my life as a rugby player. And my attention to rugby, I mean, I used to play tennis and football and at Eton, we had all these crazy games called the Eton Wall Game, Eton Field Game. So I was, I was in fives and I, was, I loved all sports. But the one that was always top of mind for me was rugby. And and it's a small, silly thing in life, but I remember the first time I played for the first 15 at Eton, and I just remember how, how chuffed I was to be playing this, this proper sport and, and being recognized and being allowed to play on the best team. And we were a great team, and, I, and I, that, that was an important moment of, of feeling within. Uh, a second one, which is also within rugby, is when I went to Colgate University before I went to Yale. I played for the Colgate team. And I remember having this conversation with the rugby mates and, and it was a, let's say a marking moment in my life because I called out some of the non-attractive 
language that they were using with regard to a woman. And, and I just remember the, the challenging position to be in sort of like a testosterone-filled environment. And well, what, what sort of person are you? And, and I just remember that sort of confrontation in my mind of how it was to try to bring a fullness to even my rugby teammates. Of course, I love them dearly. I just felt that that was inappropriate. And that, 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 was, that, that also was a kind of a marking moment in my rugby career. That's quite an interesting, yeah, because that, you know, obviously being from New Zealand and hopefully by the time this goes out, we'll have won the World Cup. You, um, you know, I know that's a very blokey environment and, you know, in the day that we live in now, you know, it's all very obvious what is and isn't correct. But back then, it probably was quite a big thing to have stepped out. I mean, how, how did they react? Well, it was sort of in, in an awkward silence and um, very quickly got glossed over. But one of, the, one of the teammates came up to me about two weeks later and said, oh, I, I really appreciated what you said. So that was the, that's how it ended, if you will. But it was just a, like a moment of like, hmm, realization. And, and it, something I it took with me through the rest of my time, certainly in corporate world, was I'm the, I'm the white male guy. So I'm as you know, obviously normal as they get. But I want to be, I always felt like I should be the worm inside. Oh, I like that. Operating with a group of typically men, my, my style, and, and yet hold a line which they're not used to. So behind the, the closed doors or in the locker room, the guy who's able to occasionally, because I, I was definitely not going to say I'm always good, but I occasionally felt like I was able to bring back some sense of behind, you know, opening the doors a little bit to what should be said and should be felt. Yeah. Without necessarily calling myself a goody goody two shoes. I think it's the the trying, I think, is one of the most important things. So the world moves on and I think we're all trying to constantly ensure that we are improving. And I think that, that that's a big part of it. The so, irony let me just say, okay. Lena, the irony of it for me today is I feel we need to pull back the other way. Mm. Yeah, I'm not. I'm. I'm probably going to be controversial and agree with you there. Yep. Well, it's a controversial thought. It's a yep. non-politically correct thought. It's against the thread, and it's. I would call it a non-conformist thought today. The easier thought is to say we should love everybody and everybody's beautiful, but that's bollocks. Oh no, there's kids out there. <laughs> yeah, of course they are. And by the way, and it's part of my premise that you need to belong and feel different. So. By belonging, well, I belong to this team. You support New Zealand. You don't yep. support England. So your desire would be that one wins over the other. And yeah. so you don't want the other one. You're against the other one. And and it seems like we're no longer allowed to talk about against the other side. Yeah, it's an interesting point because I'm quite often asked as a very – strong opinioned uh as i said you know gobby bolshy woman i'm always asked to speak about my thoughts on inclusion and diversity and you know pay gaps and all that kind of thing and i just can't keep i've kind of come at it well stop thinking about it like if a guy's talking over you in a, in a boardroom then talk louder and if you know, I'm yeah. I come from it in a slightly. I get myself in trouble a little bit sometimes because I I don't think like I'm a business woman. I think of myself as a damn good business person, and my gender makes no difference, which right. can be quite controversial. With people. yeah, it certainly is. I mean, it's mean to be different. 
Yeah, we have we have a long way to go, but I, I mean, so I, I, what I feel is important, Lena, is that we can create environments where we can talk about this stuff without getting our proverbial knickers in a twist. Yeah, agree. the the issue is that we're no longer able to even address it, and and it's for me as a white male, it's even more obviously you know provocative if I'm the one that starts talking because I'm the privileged white male guy mm-hmm. talking about these kinds of things. But I feel like doesn't mean you're wrong, though. Well, I don't know, but I, what I do know is that I feel it's necessary to keep on going back in. So just like going into the rugby, the teammates was a going into the cesspit at some point. I also feel like I'm doing the same thing, but into a larger cesspit. Yeah. <laughs> I say cesspit into a a group that feels that they have the authority, and and I think that the the issue of of that self righteousness today is going to cause problems. So while I'm fully, of course, in favor and a supporter of so many of these different ideas, like pay equality for the same work, of course. But there are, we're now in a situation where we're no longer able to say, well, you're bad. If the person is a woman and she's bad, well, she's bad. It's not because she's a woman that she's bad. I, I should be allowed to say it that but the otherwise, very quickly, out of context in particular, I'll be called out for saying I'm a sexist. Yeah, which me having met you, you're the furthest thing from a sexist that I've ever come across for a, a many a long time. So, yeah, definitely, definitely don't put you in there. And, and I'm in agreement. I remember only the other day there was a comment made um, on a LinkedIn thread and, you know, they were comparing uh, Boris Johnson with, Theresa May and you know the respect being given to Boris no matter what because he was a bloke and not being given to Theresa and lots of those kinds of things and I just went back and went it's got nothing to do with gender she was just she didn't push it through well it turns out neither did he but you know, <laughs> stop blaming it on gender is my take on that so it might be she's just a bit crapper at negotiating it's got nothing to do with whether she's male or female um well, actually I, I, I'm going to put it another way. I think that there was no way to win, and I don't right. believe one or t'other is in a possible good situation. It's um, a lose-lose type of organization. Yeah, no, I, I agree. We've digressed there quite a bit, but actually yes. an area of conversation, you know, a living proof of not always, you know, answering to the status quo and, and sort of not always conforming. Obviously, there's been times, having having moved a lot and having been the new one in the school, there would have been a lot of times where you are, no matter your personality type, you're the different one, you're the, the new one. Was was that easy or hard? You know, whenever you've stood out or in any situation, was that easy or hard to deal with? So the way I'm going to answer that is I think no one has that immediate self-confidence right away. So you have to build it up over time. And a bunch of gawky eight-year-olds down in Swanage, Dorset. None of us was feeling like I was the the one or the anointed. You know, we were all grappling with these notions of self-identity and confidence. Certainly, if you're English and your name is, you know, John Smith, you're possibly more likely to feel like you fit in. Coming as a supposedly Yank, although I was already speaking English probably, and with a weird name, which definitely contributes to a stumbling block to fitting in immediately. Yeah, I felt like I was 
I had to earn my place. And I presumably got teased a lot for being a yank or for freckles or for one or one or other, you know, side quirks of my personality when I was younger. But I kind of felt that that was everybody. And I didn't feel worse than others. I didn't feel worse treated. And I sort of rumbled with learning life lessons, which I think life is actually difficult. And and being taught how to stand up for yourself is is what you should learn in life. And having a, a walled garden for a childhood is not setting you up for success in some regards. It it could be on one level to you know say make you confident because you're capable of playing the violin and exploring everything, and your parents pay for everything. But on the other hand, life isn't easy, and you have to make your own journey. And so, I feel like that was a good part of my upbringing. No, that's good. I think the walled garden thing's an interesting one because you you see that with with a lot of parenting. What I do as a non-parent, I often notice it that there's this overprotection. I do question: is it the right thing or is it not? And I not being a parent, it's hard for me to say really. But it, well, it's difficult for even parents, as I am. You know, tough love or not, discipline or not, structure or not. Yeah, and I'd imagine being a parent of a of any kind of maverick or non-conformist or unorthodox type person, that must be a hard hard line to decide which way you go about parenting that kind of that kind of child. So um which which sort of brings me on to another interesting area of discussion. Obviously throughout your life you've had to learn how to gravitate towards people that were sort of more your kind of person or maybe square pegs and round holes. What were those other people out there like you? How, you know, when did you start to notice that there were people that weren't the ones that fitted in the boxes and that were the square pegs and round holes? And how did they cope? Well, I'm going to start with the story about my arrival in the United States on my third time uh, sent back to America, uh, despite myself. And, and the funny thing here was that I, I, was, I'd, I was working for L'Oreal and I'd been sent from Paris to New York as an expatriate. So I was an American expatriated to New York. So if you can get a wind of that. And and the interesting thing here was that I thought, well, oh, it's a Yank. I'm going to be accepted because I'm an American. Well, no, because I, I was actually considered a French person or a spy from headquarters. Oh, God. And that kind of put me, you know, took the wind out of my sails. And uh, the fortunate thing was I landed in a brand called Redken. And Redken was a brand that L'Oreal had purchased. And I just all of a sudden felt like I was within my family. But it was within my family, within the larger L'Oreal context. And I definitely felt that I was part of the Redken family and less of the L'Oreal family. And it, it, I mean, it led me to many discoveries, amongst which are what is a true brand and how to make a maverick brand, which is, you know, maybe what my life's biggest accomplishment was, was participating in the flourishing of the Redken brand as a nonconformist type of brand, even though it's a mass brand. But the story I wanted to tell you was <laughs> I, I became head of Redken Worldwide and uh, the guy who was the general manager of Redken USA, which is my biggest, the biggest subsidiary, 60% of my business, was this guy called Pat, Pat Parenti. And, and he was just an amazing guy. I really appreciated the way he rolled. And it took us I don't know, at least six months to figure out they were both deadheads. And so uh, he was wearing ties just like I was. He was sometimes tie-dyes underneath, but 
we were both playing the corporate game, but definitely behind the scenes, we had a, we had another act. And what was fun is that as we grew into our positions, we were more and more able to bring our other act into work, even though we were part of the L'Oreal organization. So that was, um, that was, that was a fun, fun one for me. A second answer is with regard to this notion of bobos. I don't know if you know the expression bobo. Have you ever heard of it? No. All right. So it was brought up in the French uh, society and it's bohemian bourgeois. Ah, and, I don't know what that is. Yeah. And so bobo, I was like, well, that sounds like me. Oh, you mean there are many of us? And so it was, it was actually this notion. It was the beginning of what I think is, is what's happening today, which is, these sort of standard people who were brought up in classic ways because that's just the way it was. I mean, you can have the fringe people who drop out of high school, who do heroin and, you know, that whatever, and, and live that sort of artist life, the more fringe, if you will, of society. And then there are others who, who go through the traditional channels, but then feel like that's just not me. You know, this is just too conservative. It's too strict. It's too boring. And so you, you add to the bourgeois element, this bohemian thing. And so you end up wanting to do holidays that people don't do. You want to have things in your apartment that no one else has, could own. And you want to establish your point of difference, your bohemianness within a bourgeois environment. Mm-hmm. In the French, we have another expression called the, the, the gauche caviar, the people who are on the left who like to eat caviar. And um, it, there, there's a conflict within bobo because bourgeois, it's a code. You know, that's the standard. Bohemians, that's all, they, they have no standards. They're, they're, that is, by definition, this other side. And anyway, so I, I started also recognizing in the Bobo movement that I was maybe really just like anyone else, wanting to be, you know, succeed in, um, in the, the normal ways, but also wanting to recognize that I have a difference and I have, you know, I've moved 15 times, I've done this and that, you know, the minter in the bourgeois, whatever that sort of bohemian side was. I, maybe my little narrative would also say, well, I was you know, prepared to have an earring in my ear. Um, I didn't put it somewhere else, but uh, I had long hair and I'm not afraid to take psychedelics and to talk about it. And so I, had, I, did, I did roll, <laughs> not just joints, I did roll in a different way. It's a very interesting point because that, that's where I've found myself, you know, I, I, all my life having been brought up by quite by Hemian parents in some ways, but my mum's a Jehovah's Witness, so I had that really weird, hippie Jehovah's Witness, complete difference in the way that I was brought up. Bobo kind of covers it both, really. But I did find myself, you know, wanting to succeed to a certain extent in, and be recognised in, in an industry, i.e. the creative advertising industry, but at the same time, working in those massive organisations like WPP and Dentsu and so forth, I always felt out of place. I always felt like I was kicking against. So I do I do get that. And you must have, you know, to your point, you, you know, you were in L'Oreal and so forth and found yourself probably in that same kind of dichotomy. You, you have inevitably need to resist against something. And so it, everybody... Even the squarest of pegs think that they are resisting against two squares, True. or you know, bigger squares or thick squares, and and that even though they fit in, they're eh, well, it's not exactly my square, and and they have a little narrative that well, the top right hand corner could be a little bit tighter, 
Whereas the round, you know, there's the, there's some that are big rounds and small rounds and, and there's more or less fitting in and everybody has a sort of, they swap. And I don't think you actually necessarily have to be nonconformist or out of place all the time throughout your life. In some regard, what I think is more interesting is finding your space, whatever your form that fits. In other words, you know, if you're round or square or triangular or whatever, as long as it's you and, and, and that is the, the more interesting journey because you're always in opposition to others and you'll, you know, maybe you're triangular and then you're going to find where triangles fit, but maybe it's upside down triangles fitting in with, with right way ups and, and you, 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 each of us has to find a little path along the way. Yeah, I, I totally get that. I think that that's one of the underlying drivers behind not the FTSQ business, because that's that's one thing, but the community of FTSQ for me is all about providing a safe environment for nonconformists to be who they are. And I think a lot of the time when they're out in the big wide world, they've got a lot of people, whether that be parents or partners or family, friends, bosses, teachers, professors, whatever, telling them that they need to conform in order to succeed. And actually, in doing that, they squish them into being something that they're not. And I very much agree with you about the nonconformist doesn't just take one shape. It's let them take their shape, the better way of looking at it. Yeah, mm. totally agree with that. So um, nonconformist that you admire, who's out there that you sort of – see as a person you go actually yeah that's a person that is clearly a non-conformist and and I admire them and sort of why do you admire them well I struggle with this question so the very first one would have to be a man who's dead who I admired tremendously who was the leader of the rock and roll band I used to follow it was called Jerry Garcia and um, he was also a musician up in this family that was quite conservative in Texas, and then he sort of found his way out uh, and found his path. And but he never was really considered the forthright leader of the Grateful Dead. He was the soul of the band. He led from within, and I, I really appreciate having studied more and more about what he did in his life, how he led, and how he m- created this community. Well, he and the other members of the band created their community. A second person you might not expect but also there's a link, um, was a squash player. Uh, he was the U.S. number one squash player. And he, playing a different form of squash than we're used to over here, it's called hardball, but at the time he was the number one U.S. player. It was a competitive field, and he was quite tall and lanky. He was my coach's brother. His name was Mark Talbot. And what I really enjoyed about him was that he was also a deadhead. And it just struck me extraordinary that you can be the number one in your field and be a deadhead, which parenthetically meant you might take some, you know, hallucinogenics and, <laughs> and other things, which are not necessarily supposed to be good for your sporting career. But I found that was remarkable. You can you can also be, you know, a little bit different and exceptional in, in a field. In some ways, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. The third person that also no longer exists, but I've I've always been a fan is called uh, Anne Rand. So the Russian emigre who moved to America, I guess in the 20s, 
and is responsible for some very well-known books in America, not necessarily applauded everywhere, one of which is called Atlas Shrugged, and the other one is Fountainhead. And she was remarkable. She had this whole philosophy. And, and while the books have aged and her style have aged, I've always appreciated her notion of self-responsibility and determinism. And if you want it, you can make it kind of thing. And um, so that that's a woman who struck out. She was a Russian emigre and, and made her mark as a woman writer in, uh, in the States. And I sort of um, applaud her. And the last one, probably the most boring, <laughs> but someone I definitely appreciate and is also going to feature heavily in my book is Richard Branson. Nice. And the area that I particularly appreciate, apart from kind of living the brand, is the way he has brought dyslexia out as a force. And my daughter being dyslexic, I also have a strong awareness and appreciation of that thought. I didn't know that about him. Interesting. Mm-hmm. He's quite. I see. I don't think he has a boring mouth. I think he was a very interesting person. I understand why you said, "Oh, he's he's maybe the boring one," but actually, when you look at how he started out and the risks that he took and totally believed in himself, I mean, he's categorically the kind of person that you know, for anyone in business, particularly, wants to unpack and understand. Yeah. So. He would surely hit me, slap me over the face for calling him boring, for <laughs> he is anything but boring. But I mean that only in the sense that out of the ones that I wanted to tell you about, he's probably the one you're most aware of as um, as an audience. Yeah, no, but totally get it. Totally, totally get it. So the interesting thing, you've, you've talked a lot about different people in your lives, and which brings me on to sort of some of your books you were talking to me earlier about The Last Ring Home and the films and the book book and the film that, that's come out of that, and that kind of taps into that people that you've been around bit. certainly has. 25 years of my life, Lena. I spent 25 years researching wow. this story, and you know, at some level, I, I, the narrative could be, well, this is just another old American who needs to find out who his, what his roots are. And surely that's true. In this, my case, this, I was named after my grandfather, who was killed as a prisoner of war of the Japanese in the Second World War. And so I had no idea who he was. I was born 20 years after he died. And I didn't even spend the first 25 years of my life thinking about him. I, I had another grandfather because my grandmother remarried this other incredible man who was the number two of the OSS, which was the predecessor to the CIA. Oh, wow. And he was this lovely Minnesotan man who had this laugh that made you melt. And he was extremely intelligent and had seen a lot of stuff. He spoke fluent German, had met Hitler as a spy, and um, he'd done some stuff. Anyway, my other grandfather, who after whom I had been named, I had no idea about. And then all of a sudden, I stumbled into the, the, the notion that he existed and his life and some of the things which he did. And I met, or I, I managed to find, 130 veterans who had fought with him or had been prisoners with him in the, in, in, yeah. in the prison camps. And through that, I got a whole other whiff of what's important in life. And I would say that really was a, I mean, a monumental journey for me. And I've tried to relay that in a, my best storytelling mode in a film which has been on TV in the States and Canada and Australia and New Zealand on PBS and History Channel. And, um, and still not in England, so one day, if a 
producers out there, ones I <laughs> Um, but otherwise, uh, also wrote the book. And the book, of course, is a different medium and allowed me to tell a different type of story as well as different parts of the story. In both cases, trying to be relevant to any public that doesn't know Minter so that, you know, like a stranger can pick it up and find it interesting. I hope that's the case. But anyway, that's that's been a, a monumental part of my life. That's for, for sure. I think what's interesting about that, and it's something I was thinking about the other day, is how much does genetics come into non-conformity and people that attack the world differently or do things differently or, or do extraordinary things? What, what's your thoughts on that, having looked at yourself and sort of how you are and then looked at your grandfather and what he was like? How, what's your thought on the genetics of passing down that sort of standing out? Right, so I'm no geneticist, although in, in, in future we did talk about genomics. I my feeling is that the the context in which you're brought up is far more relevant. So, for example, if you have a parent who is nonconformist and celebrates your nonconformity as a child, I think that's going to be a stronger notion than necessarily the genetic component of it, because I think that the most of the nonconformists that I have come across have kind of rejected the parental framework they've been brought up with. Somehow they they rejected either the corporate path that they were supposed to do the you know be a lawyer, go to go to good school and be a lawyer and and you know come come home and behave. And and if that framework is too strict a framework, it it encourages some to want to break out and I think that I feel like that is the way it rolls more than the genetic pass down, you know, one maverick doth breed another. Mm, I totally agree with that. It is something I, I think I might one day try and see if I can find a geneticist and see if there's anything else in there. I don't know. It's something I've been thinking about a lot lately. <laughs> Big piece of research, though. There, there might be more with regard to epigenetics, in that the the cont- which is really the notion of how your genes are or your parts of your genes are impacted by your environment. Ah, yeah, this and is a new thing, isn't it? That's closer to it. I, I, as opposed to your, you know, your deeper 21, 23 chromosomes, which, you know, if you're brought up in an environment that's repressive or, you know, is maybe filthy or, I don't know, some kind of toxin that you, you're, you react to, then I think that there can be an epigenetic component to the way that might stimulate you to become more comfortable or pursue the maverick role. Mm, yeah, Definitely something for me to be pursuing in the future, I think. Invite anybody who knows anybody of it to contribute to. Yeah, no, I think it would be fantastic. Obviously, you've taken a while to pull that book together and a lot of research, but that's not the only book that you've written it'd be really interesting to talk to you more about your sort of current work and current books when you and I first met it was actually when you were talking about your approach to AI and machine learning and I remember sitting there thinking oh this guy's different he's coming at this in a very different way in a way that I I liked and so be you know your view as a futurist fascinates me can we can we talk more about that with pleasure so First of all, I've written an unpublished novel, so that's 
in the cupboard somewhere and um, just say, yeah, well, you know, just, I, I love to write. And so my last book is called Artificial Empathy and it came out of a personal need rather than necessarily this visionary futurist mind that I had. And the personal need was with regard to the concept of empathy. So I had some very difficult moments that happened to me personally and and uh, and I realized that I wasn't really in tuned with uh, some individuals in one particular, who was my best friend, who um, took his life. And in that last six weeks that we had together, I realized that I wasn't able to really tap back in and understand what was going on. And um, then a few other things happened, and it made me think, whoa, mentor, mentor, you need to you know up your empathy game what is it and how do you do it? And I, I wanted to sort of explore that. And that led me into, wow, people are thinking that they can em- encode empathy into AI. Well, that's crazy. And so anyway, that, that, that led me to the need to sort of corral what was being done. So I interviewed about 10 experts who had been exploring the idea of encoding empathy into AI. I then uh, talked with a number of experts on the, the pure notion of AI, uh, sorry, empathy. So these would be psychologists and other socio, you know, sociotherapists who would really have an understanding of the, the human elements of it. And I wanted to marry those two elements, but also take it from a business angle. And so the business angle was, how can you sow empathy into your organization and then encode it into the machine? And that was the sort of the bigger idea, because ultimately what I believe is that empathy is needed in society and is the superpower to make a business grow. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that one. I think one of the issues we've got in society at the moment, whether you look at the current state of politics or you look at the way that humans are treating other humans, empathy definitely seems to be one of the things that's missing for sure. And of course, AI learns from what we teach it <laughs> exactly yeah, well of course it does it gives it learns from the data sets we give from it and it gives and it learns with the formulas that we encourage it and and those are underneath us uh, subconsciously being done and and provided so it's not necessarily an intentional thing that we do but i think we need to be intentionally more empathic and yet going back to the topic we talked about before lena I also don't want this to be 100% empathy and all of us turning into just, you know, wonderful listeners. You do have to do, you do have to take decisions. You ha- you do have to subscribe and belong to certain tribes and not others. And so the idea of being, you know, thinking that the world is filled with beautiful people and you want to know everybody is wrong. So we have to be able to pull that back and be more realistic because that is, in, from my opinion, how we've gotten to the situation where we have Trump in the United States and Brexit in, in England or in Britain. You do need some grit and friction. It's about what is the right grit and what is the right friction, I suppose, isn't it? Yeah, I think life is hard. And to try to create an ideal might be beautiful, but it's not realistic. Well, it's like that movie where they've got all the women that turn into robots. Stepford Wives, that's right, the one. Right. You get Pleasantville or Stepford Wives when you get when you get that situation. Ugh, grim. Yeah. <laughs> so one of the things that I wanted to also discuss is, and we may have touched on this a little bit, for me one of the most 
powerful things I'm trying to encourage people to do is to tap into that difference and turn it into a place of power. Obviously, throughout your life, you've had times where you were the different person and obviously, you know, you've learnt to turn that into a place where there is, now I don't mean power as in power over people, but a strength in yourself that actually you've tapped into that thing that's different. Um, was there a moment, one particular moment, where you just kind of decided that that's, that difference was something to be celebrated and turn into a, a place of strength for you or not? Well, I can't say it was at the moment that I figured it out, but it's with retrospect the moment that it happened if that makes sense. So the, the moment, it sounds rather corny at some level, is I'm sitting in my office. It's a Tuesday morning. It's a beautiful day. And I turn right out of my, I had this corner office, I turn right and I see a ball of flame come out of the building that was uh, within my view. And I said, oh, that's, that's interesting. It's bizarre. And shortly enough, my assistant came into my room, Marianne, and she said, oh, there's, that's a terrorist act. I was like, how do you know that already? Anyway, this was, this was happening at roughly 8.50 a.m. on the 9th, on the 11th of September, oh, wow. 2001. And I watched the whole thing happen in front, including watching the second airplane fly down all the way and then enter the South Tower and and you know, lost some friends, and and you know, experienced this sort of revolution that sort of happened in New York. And I remember having one moment of thought, which at that point, on the eleventh of September, two thousand and one, my father had, was in town. He'd just come to visit us after having not seen him for a couple of years. So he had dinner on the night of the tenth of September. And the crazy thing, Lena, was that that night I was sitting on a manuscript everything I had known about his father and mother after 10 years of research. And I wasn't able to give it to him. It wasn't like he, he just wasn't in a mode of wanting to receive it. And, and that's, that was what it was. And then the next day, the proverbial stuff hits the fan. Mm-hmm. And then he comes back for dinner. His pain was canceled. And it was that night that I felt liberated or the desire, the need to tell him, what I discovered in the interviews that I'd had with the veterans and people who knew my grandparents about how they lived, how they died, what they felt, and so on. And how they survived, which was quite timely, I suppose. Yeah. And then the, 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 the specific thought that m- made me trigger was, hmm, this is my Pearl Harbor moment. And, and let me explain that one in a second, because my grandfather was the captain of a, of a ship called the USS Napa in the Philippines. And in my research, I was able to find that they had managed to save the logbook of the USS Napa that was scuttled in April of 1942 in the Manila Bay. And um, I I took the, I found the logbook and in one uh, entry, which was on the 8th of December, 1941, which was the morning after Pearl Harbor, he, my, my grandfather had written in, in in ink pen in the margin, 0340 hours, hostilities with the Japanese empire have started, we are at war. Wow. And, you know, you're captain of a, of a ship, you've got men to look after, you've got families back home, 
and you're now in battle stations. And of course, there were, uh, I think the number was 2,500 casualties in Pearl Harbor, and there were 2,800 or so casualties in the Twin Towers. And I just found the parallels really starting to speak to me. Anyway, so out of this, I, I, with this revelation to my father, a reconnection with him, the vision of the brand that I was running, which was called Redken, underline it was Fifth Avenue, New York City, which meant that everything we did had the genetic coding of New York in it, was under siege. And I felt like I needed to do something more than just sell shampoos. So that was really when I started on a, a new path. And um, it didn't mean I changed everything overnight, but it, it did make me more serious about this idea of, of creating a legacy around my grandfather and paying tribute to him, and then deciding to do more important things, in my opinion, than just sell shampoos. Follow your purpose. That's it. Yeah. I, defi- I really, I rigorously created my purpose. It was about three years after that that I wrote down my very first mission, personal mission statement, if you will, you know, who am I? And uh, it's since evolved and I've, you know, I've been carrying it with me and I try to make sure that every part of my day, every, sorry, every day, a part of it is dedicated to following my purpose. I think it's really interesting that you mentioned before that when you got to tell your father about what you'd been working on was obviously that first step on the road towards your purpose, but you mentioned something that really jumped out at me, actually. You mentioned freedom. And I think I'm with you, like, you know, I'm 46. I've been working since I was 17 years old. I have worked a long time and I've done lots of different things in my life. And it's funny, the moment I realized what I was going to do, having sold the last business to my business partner and set up FTSQ, I felt free. For the first time in my career and my first time in my working life, I felt I was doing the one thing I should have, I was meant to do but hadn't been ready to do and everything had led to that moment. So I, I totally get that freedom feeling. It's it's pretty special. But it's the, the shackles we carry around with us, which are oftentimes called yeah. expectations, but it can be societal norms that we wish to resist. And you know, in our dreams, we might want to throw them away, but actually we know there's a reason why we're attached to them. They're called family or they're called laws. (laughs) And some of them have a purpose and some of them fit better. And then little by little, you get to a place, and that's what I meant before, where you find, you know, your space. Yeah. And it's not about necessarily having to fight all the squares all the time. You know, you if you want, you can try that journey, but then maybe you find a form that is yours. And and it fits in another form, which is copacetic with that. And that becomes your gang and your tribe and, and your space. Because we do need to live with others. We need to belong with others. And that path to finding them, you might accept some conformists with nonconformists. You might accept with left, left-handers and right-handers. And these different groups that come in, and, and there's no one cookie-cutter mold to it. And by the way, it's still organic because you create this group and, and maybe one or two fall off. Of course, some of them will die, and we all will by the, you know, as, as we go along. And because and I'm mean, 55, that's a closer thought. <laughs> but we, we have these – this is an organic process, and there's no, like, stayed, perfect rhythm to all this. It's, you know, you have to – it's messy, and you, you evolve as you go along. 
Agreed. I quite like the messy, though. It's the bit that excites me, I think. (laughs) Which brings us to the last wrapping up question that I always ask all the people that I talk to on this podcast. And actually, it's quite pertinent to you as a futurist. I'm really excited about what you might say about this. What do you think is the future for nonconformists? Right. Well, my feeling is that almost by definition, nonconformists have a future. The challenge is doing it in a way that fits because there are certain principles that we are all governed by. And this includes things like, well, you probably need money to pay for the bills. And, and there are certain laws and conventions that exist for good reason. Even all religions can agree on that one. So I think that it's about finding your mixture because, you know, if you're a bunch of nonconformists, um, you know, r- running a company, well, who's doing the finances? <laughs> I, I say that you can, of course, be a nonconformist financial analyst, but at some level, y- you need somebody to help, you know, pull the lever because there's an engineer who's who's got who's got the ability to pull pull the lever or, the, or build the bridge because. You can build nonconformist bridges, but if they collapse, not good. So you need to find this combination of yin and yangy kind of things. Nonconformists in, in organizations have an enormous role. Problem is, most organizations are non are, are not accepting of them, and the reason for that is fear. They they fear the this nonconventional approach, so they much rather dummy down, hire people that are less good than I am, and and, and whereas the, the ability to spark great conversations and to accept the foibles and the messiness that you just talked about are, are, are how the best companies will succeed in the future. So this is basically what I'm talking about in my new book, which is on leadership, which on one hand says how to lead from within and not need to be on a parapet where because you have the title, you have the authority. It also says that you need to accept diversity of opinion without necessarily saying that we love everybody and appreciate everyone's opinion because you do need to make decisions. You do need to channel. And it also accepts that there are different strengths uh, of each other. And so within diversity, there's not necessarily nonconformity. Within diversity, you have differing opinions and, and different approaches and different cultures bringing nonconformity into it is breaking rules, which is the very beginning of this talk about, which is how do you live outside the rules? And, you know, because if everyone's living outside of the rules, it's it's tricky. But how do you create an environment where you accept some element of nonconformity? And I think that's the balance that, that organizations need to have. If you're a nonconformist and you think that you can overwrite and overrule and live above all the laws, like certain, let's say, one president uh, thinks that he is able to do. Well, I don't think that's a good thing. He is a total nonconformist, by the way. I mean, oh, he's totally. I had this conversation he, with some, or oh, it might have been you the other day, actually. <laughs> he's right up there. Yet, it's not, you know, my ballywick, but while uh, in a business environment, which is mostly what we're talking about, and especially when we're in creative areas like, you know, creative agencies and all, you need to embrace that. And it's not easy. And, and when I was at L'Oreal, I used to run a, a you know a large team, and and we had the creative agency in house, and we had many very creative elements to our team, and and managing create creative people is is much harder 
than you know re- managing your financial analysts who who like who like to follow the laws and, and the rules, and uh, and understanding the the expression of emotions being a good thing in your environment. Anyway, that I think this this is the the role. It's two ways. The organizations need to know how to embrace nonconformity, and the nonconformist also needs to know where to pull it back and and play the game and i think that's the the good marriage you you might think of it as a compromise but i think ultimately it needs to be a team and and yeah sometimes you need to take off take off your ego head which is also underlying for sometimes in the non-conformist camp and play take one for the team because some that that's what sometimes the team needs yeah i agree well, look, that's been a really interesting discussion. I like I like how we rounded up almost back where we started, which is which is quite good. Oh, that sounds like a roundhead in the, in the you know what's the, what the expression? <laughs> There's an expression around that. Yeah. <laughs> hey, look, I, I really appreciate it. Um, good luck with all the new writing. I'm looking forward to seeing what's what's going to come up next. And, um, appreciate all your time today and your thoughts on on the world of nonconformity and celebrating everything that is non-conformist in the world in the best way possible lena been a pleasure thanks for having good luck to you too thank you very much